Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. My name is Eric. I want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads uh, in the room. Uh, we have a gift for you out there if you want to get a dad's uh, root beer. It's just uh, on us, the way to have fun. Uh, you know, we teach through the Bible here pretty consistently, and sometimes that can be hard, so it's good to have fun once in a while, right? Laugh? No? Not you guys? Last service, love to have fun, okay? Uh, we can have fun and also teach the Bible, and so that's just a, a fun way. Also, if you haven't noticed, we have VBS tomorrow, which will be lots of fun. And so we're excited about that. Yeah, you can clap. Um, just some prayer requests to think through is um, with VBS, we, this is the first time this has happened. We're going to have over 100 kids who've never been to our church before. Never been. And so we're anticipating there's going to be a lot of kids who don't know Jesus, and we're excited. We're going to uh, open our Bibles and share the gospel with them. Um, and that's something we have a conversation with and we walk them through. We don't just raise a hand and say you're saved. And so if you could be praying for the volunteers, uh, for that have patience and just courage and that we'd be able to, to walk with them. And, and also, like, just I don't know if you, you get to see the full scope is so many kids, when they become adults, will say, you know, I was you know, became a Christian at, at VBS. And inevitably what happens is parents start coming to church because the kids are like, I want to be a church. I want to be a church because we go where the kids say. True? Fair? Yeah. And so they, they start coming. And so it's just a great way to, to reach out for them. And so we're going to pray uh, for VBS and just also be mindful. We have a team going to Uganda uh, and Jason, our outreach director, was in Kenya and now Romania. And so we're just excited to, to share the gospel here and all throughout the world. So let's pray. God, we think we are so thankful uh, that we get to just preach the word and we get the, the gospel to go out here and all over the world. And it's our prayer you'd be lifted high, you'd be loved and adored and worshipped uh, in all the nations. And we pray tomorrow as we start VBS that uh, the gospel would be clear. Kids would know who Christ is, the work he's done, uh, what it means that you died for their sins on the cross. Pray for the volunteers that they would have uh, just lots and lots of energy, that they would have patience, uh, that they would have clarity and wisdom um, to love these kids. And just pray as a church we would love them and walk with them and help them grow in their faith. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So remember, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10. We're going to go through those two chapters. And just remember, when we're in um, a historical narrative, it's different than maybe like a New Testament epistle where you have imperatives. It's like, do, do this. Don't do this. This is wrong. And so for some of you engineers and spreadsheet guys, you're like, I don't know what to do, right? So what we're going to do is look at the text, but draw out principles, right? Deductively that we see that God's teaching us and look through the narrative and see this is God giving us an opportunity to see, hey, don't do this. This doesn't work. Do do this. This is how I designed you. And so that's what we're going to do is walk through that and one of the easy th easier ways to do that is kind of connect and think through like, man, if I was in that situation and, and if that were to happen, what would I think? Or I've been in that situation before and kind of identify and see and then start to see like, oh, wow, I see that in the scripture. How can I learn from that and not do that? Uh, an easy just reminder, it's really easy to demonize Israel. Right? It's really easy to be like, man, you guys are really dumb. You guys just aren't that bright. Um, but reality is we do the exact same thing, just we approach it differently, don't we? And so just a reminder on where we're at. So we have Samuel, who is the prophet, right? He's the priest. He's old. Chapter 8 told us he's old in years. Um, Hannah, his mom, 
Uh, Samuel was a gift that she was barren for many years. And then she says that she'll dedicate this baby Samuel to the Lord. So Samuel's been raised uh, as a priest, as a prophet, to do the work of the Lord, to hear the Lord and communicate with the people. And now he's old, his sons have gone astray, and the people said, we want a king. And God tells Samuel, you know what? They've rejected me, not just you, they've rejected me. And so what we pick up is this beginning of the rejecting of God. So we're going to look at really three ways we can reject God by rejecting his standards, his work, uh, and his word. And so first one, uh, his standards. If you go to Deuteronomy 17, uh, early on, God actually says, hey, you know, there will be a king one day, and these are the requirements of the king. And they walk through uh, what that is. So when you read Deuteronomy 17, we don't have time to go through all of it, so just write it down, reference it. It says that the, the man needs to love the word of God. He needs to keep the law of the Lord. He needs to fear the Lord. Um, he needs to not turn from the left or to the right, but stay straight. He can't be a legalist. He can't be an anti-law. There is no law. He, he needs to fear the Lord. He needs to do what God says. He needs to love what the word of God says. Um, God says all through scripture, you know, leaders, First Timothy and Titus, right? to have the trustworthy word as taught, men of high character, men that love the Lord. So it walks through, this is what a leader is. It even walks through what is beauty. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it tells women, don't adorn yourselves with, you know, uh, what you wear and how you look. True beauty is on the inside, right? That God looks at the heart. David says uh, that the Lord uh, adores a contrite, humble, broken spirit. So God sees beauty on the inside, he looks on the inside to see where someone uh, is of value, what they're doing. And so right from the beginning, that framework, Saul goes against all of those standards. Okay, let's look. How, does, how is Saul described early on? Verse 1, he's a man of wealth. Verse 2, he's handsome. Verse 2, he's tall. He was taller than anyone. Verse 2, again, he's handsome. So he's Middle Eastern, so I'm guessing tall, dark, and handsome, right? And rich. And it says, this, this is your king. Is any of that spiritual? No, that's not a trick question, right? It's not. Now, you can be tall, dark, and handsome and spiritual, right? But notice there was nothing else added. That he had a heart that feared the Lord. That, that he knew the, the, the laws of God, that he held them up high. That he knew all of these things. And, aren't you, and, and you're, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, didn't God pick this guy? They won't know. The, the people said, we want a king like what? The nations. So he's saying, here's your worldly king. He's tall, he's dark, and he's handsome. Okay? And here I would begin to interject. We start to see a problem. You look down in this story is that he's lost his donkeys. That's not a good sign, right? Like how, if you lose your donkeys, how can you rule a nation? That's a fair question, right? So he can't find his donkeys. He's lost, and the servant is the one that suggests to him, maybe we should talk to the prophet, the man of God, verse 6. But he said to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So the serpent, the servant, not Saul, says maybe we should go talk to, talk to him. Now, don't you think it's maybe problematic that, that Samuel, who's been there for many years, isn't known by Saul? Do we see that being a problem, maybe? I'm not sure, okay? 1 Samuel 3.20, it says, And 
all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So it's kind of concerning that Saul doesn't even understand this. He doesn't understand that there's already a man there that you can talk to and he will help you. But the servants, the servants like, hey, we, we need to go talk to God about this. And if we're going to do that, we need to see Samuel. He's a man of God. He's the prophet. He's who, think of it. You, to go to God was to go to the prophet and he would tell you what God was speaking. That's where you'd go and lay down sacrifices. That's where you'd go and lay down praise. So, so to not be familiar with that is huge. And so right away we can see that Samuel, he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, he's rich, and he's not familiar with communicating to the Lord. And so when we look at rejecting his standard, it's like, wow, Stahl rejects all of that. Now, here's what's fascinating, is that the people of Israel, in the same way, are rejecting God's standard of a leader. I want you to think about this. You have a man who's old, right? And he's been a prophet. He was literally dedicated, raised in church, right? Raised as a prophet, as a priest, his whole life. This is what he's been called to do. There's been peace in the land, in all of the land. The Philistines haven't gone to war. Verse six, all that he says comes true. And Israel's like, yeah, we want the other guy, right? We don't want the standard that God has imposed, the man that loves the Lord, fears the Lord, loves the law of the Lord, keeps the law of the Lord. Like, no, we want a guy who's tall and dark and handsome and has wealth, someone who looks like us. Can you imagine walking past the old man who's faithfully led these people, spoke God's word to these people and saying, no, we want to go to him even though he hides in the luggage when he's called king, right? Even though he doesn't even tell anyone he is the king. We want to go to the tall, dark, and handsome guy. And it's easy to laugh and and think, you know, man, Israel, that's not really smart. But we do this all the time, don't we? We reject that God says, hey, a pastor should be, and it tells you. Read Titus 1. Read, has been taught the trustworthy word as taught. They're like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want a guy who's grown up in church and teaches the Bible. It's so boring. I want someone who's had a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction, right? Who almost been to prison or almost died. Skinny jeans, preachers with sneaker shoes, good haircut and glasses. That's what I need. Because it makes me feel warm. It entertains me. I don't want to listen to some boring person who's been to church their whole life and, and, and uses their Bible. I want someone that makes me feel alive, someone that has a story, someone that has a past, someone I can look at and be like, wow, because that's what Israel's going for. They want to show the other nations. See, we do the exact same thing. Walk past people of wisdom, faithfully been married for 50, 60 years, faithfully loved the Lord. It's like, I can't learn from them. They're good. I need to to learn some other way. I need someone that makes me feel happy, entertained, excited, tickles my ears, says what I want. We do the exact same thing. And, And further than that, we get frustrated by this model. Don't your kids frustrate you? Who do they get their most advice from? Their peers, correct? 
Okay? So I want you to think about this. Is, this is frustrating, isn't it? You have, you have a, a child, and they won't talk to you about the boy or girl they like, but they'll go talk to some kid who plays Xbox 10 hours a day and be like, he's an expert. He knows. Right? She knows. She has her own YouTube channel, right? She's got this many followers. That's going to be what helps me. And they ignore you. If you're a kid out there, I want you to hear me when I say this. Listen to your parents. Listen to your dad. He actually convinced a woman to marry him, okay? That's a big deal. That is a really big deal, okay? He actually got her to do that. Your buddy, he might be dating the cutest girl in all of 10th, 9th, 11th, 12th grade, but that does not mean he knows how to get her to marry him, okay? You want to know about love? Ask your mom. She carried you around in her womb for over nine months, and all you were was a headache, and all you did was cause her trouble. And you came out of the womb and she loved you and you didn't deserve any of it. You want to know about love? Ask your mother. And this frustrates us, doesn't it, as parents? Like, why won't you talk to the person that knows? Well, this is God saying, why don't you talk to me, the one who knows everything? But you won't tell dark and handsome. Okay. Okay. God says he gives them this. God has a standard for a reason. He says he puts it to be in leadership. These are the requirements. Men that love me, people that love me, have beauty on the inside, that love the Lord, fear the Lord, trust the Lord. Saul does not seem to have that in any way, shape, or form. And here's a summary I came across that I really liked about Saul. It says, Saul's aptitude for spiritual leadership is besmirched by his inability to find his father's lost donkeys. Most of Israel's famed leaders had been shepherds, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. So Saul's incompetence at tracking down even such large beasts, who eventually found their own way home, is unflattering to say the least. One of the most important qualifications of a spiritual leader is faithfulness in watching over God's flock. And this is something Samuel's done over and over and over again. So just some things to, to think about real quick before we get into our second point is that Saul's led by his servant. He's not leading the servant, right? He, uh, they literally create a proverb about Saul. When they see him prophesying, it says, Saul, Saul, even he's a prophet. What does that mean? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm amazed anyone can win. If Saul can do it, anyone can do it. It's like telling a team who's down 3-0, you know what, Saul was a prophet. We can do this. That's not encouraging, is it? Because what they're saying is, why is that guy with the prophets? He's crazy. He's weird. And then the last thing I just want to kind of draw your attention to is that down in, in chapter 10, you turn over in, in verse 16, and 15, is that Saul has been anointed king. He's been given a new heart. He's been given the Holy Spirit. Um, Samuel has led him down these three scenarios, like you're going to meet these guys, and you're going to meet these guys, and you're going to meet these guys. He meets all the guys. He gets anointed. He has all of these things. And, and his, his uncle's like, hey, Saul, where have you been? All right, verse 15, he says, and the uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Verse 16, and Saul said to his uncle, he plainly told us that the donkeys had been found. Oh, that's great. 
But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he told him nothing. He didn't tell him anything. He's like, so you spoke to Samuel? Yeah. Well, what happened? He told us the donkeys made it home safe. That's it? Yeah, cool. He leaves out the fact that he became the king. That's a, an important detail to leave out, don't you think? So maybe a standard here is he, he's not excited to do the work of the Lord. He's been set apart. He's been given a privilege to lead God's people, to be a conduit to tell them. I, I can't identify with being a king, but I, I can identify with this. Like, I was 15. I was at a camp. I was at a leadership camp, and they were talking about um, going into ministry and, and you know, being a pastor and, and just talking through it and asking us to pray. So I remember I was just praying. And as I'm praying this, God kind of, you know, we're having this back and forth. And it was like, hey, look at what I've done for you. Look at how I've loved you, kept you, protected you. What I've done for you, you need, you need to go do. You, you need to be a pastor. You know the first thing I did? I called my mom. Mom, I'm going to be a pastor. She's like, we'll talk when you get home, right? Like, come on, we'll see how long that lasts. But I remember just being so excited. I get to do the work of the Lord. So excited that that would be a part of what I would do, what I would have. So, so, so to read that, it's like, oh. Last thing I just want you to think about before we get into our next point. You know, Saul loses his donkeys, right? What does Jesus do in the New Testament? He rides in on a donkey. He's the king who knows what he's doing. He's the king who's got it under control. And so you see this back and forth of just looking at, he doesn't meet any of the standards. And so by rejecting God's standards, it's rejecting God himself. And then when you reject God's standards, you reject his work. And, th and this is part of God's argument. He's like, look, I've done amazing work among you. I've provided for you. Chapter 10, look at, at 18. And, and this is what he's saying. He says, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God. You think, remember Egypt? Remember the 10 plagues, locusts everywhere, blood, water running through? Do you not remember? Like I acted. I took you away from the most powerful man in the world, made you a nation, fed you in the desert. And they're looking at that work and saying, yeah, but we need someone else to be our king. They reject the work that the Lord had done. See, God's using the argument. Look at how I, what I've done in the past. Trust me in the future. Trust me now. I will do more work. And, and I will put you to work for me. Because God tells them he has a plan for them. To be a light to the nations. That they would go out and they would share. And they reject his work and say, you know what? No, no. This is even an indictment on Saul. To, to, to do that, think of the work Moses does, leading those people, the privilege to be Moses, right? To, to be Samuel. He bestows that privilege on Saul in even greater manner because he's the king. He's in charge. In verse 22, they announce this great king's going to come about. And he says, where is he? They say in 22, where is this man? It says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Oh, that's off to a great start, isn't it? 
the king hiding in the luggage, nowhere to be found. He's been given a new heart. He's been given the Holy Spirit. He's seen prophecy come about. He's reminded of God's work in Egypt, and his response is to hide in the luggage. He doesn't want to do the work of the Lord. And what's the people's response two verses later? Long live the king. What? Your guy was hiding in luggage. Be like, no, thank you. Let's go back. But rejecting the work of the Lord. There's all kinds of pieces to that, but some of the pieces that I try to think through are most you know, obvious to me. It is you know, so many people like, well, we agree, God created the earth, correct? Yeah, it's not a trick question, people. Yes, right? We believe God flooded the earth. And then they'll thank you. Then we'll get to Jonah and the big fish or the whale. And they're like, ooh, I don't know about that. Really? He speaks stars in the skies and you're worried about Jonah? What's the bigger miracle? Creating the earth, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure about the resurrection. Really? He spoke the ocean into existence. And your problem is, is the resurrection? Well, he created me male. He created me female. He says marriage between a man and a woman. So he can have authority over all of these things, but not that? I don't understand that. This is God's argument from the text. Look at all that he's done. If he can do all of these things, you trust him. He has the right to do them. You accept them. And then you also say, what work now do you want me to do? I've seen your work. And so he tells us to get where he tells us to be a light. That's what he tells Israel, right? He tells us to to disciple, tells us to raise our children according to God's word. He tells us to not gossip. He tells us to love our neighbor, tells us to forgive. He tells us all of these things. And it's like, well, I don't know if I can do that. God's argument is, well, look at what I've done. You have every reason to trust me to work now, to be there now. You know, so those are maybe some broad brush, big things. What about the little things? Because there's, there's little things that happened in Israel, in Egypt as well. Was Israel fed? Yes. Did they have water? Yes. Did they have shelter? Yes. Do we have all of those things? Yes, God provides. God provides. And what's fascinating is in this work is is God's even kind of walking Saul through this. Samuel says, hey, there's going to be these three instances. You're going to meet these guys. They're going to talk. You're going to meet some worshipers. And they're going to have gifts. And then you're going to meet the prophets. All of them, God does these little things to show him. There's no way that is random. That's the Lord working. Now, what's fascinating is when God does that with Moses, he goes, here, here's some signs I'm going to give you. Those signs are to convince the people of God. These signs are to convince Saul that God is there. And so, but again, he's being gracious to Saul. All these affirmations, all these points allow to say, you know what, I can't, I can't explain this any other way. A man said I would meet these men, and then I met him. Then he said I'd meet a man with gifts, and then I met him. Then he said I'd meet prophets, and then I met him. Exactly the way he said. God is giving and walking Saul through this process. And Saul, in return, is rejecting the work of the Lord. He's saying, I don't want to do it. In the same way, we do that all the time. We reject him. We, we forget about it. 
This is why it's so important, as we've talked weeks before, remember what the Lord has done. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember what the Lord has done. Because it gives you courage in the present and in the future. And then the last point on this is that we reject his word. See, all throughout the Old Testament, you see this, this, this paradigm being said where God says, I am your God and you will be my people. I am your God and you will be my people. I am your God, you will be my people. God says to him continually, I am your king. I am your king. I will provide for you. I love you. You are my children, right? I am in control. Trust me. Love me. And yet you have the rejection of this, it says, that they have rejected God. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do you think of Egypt and the provision of God? How do you think of the last maybe 20 to 30 years of God faithfully providing for them through Samuel? How do you look at just this awkwardness of Saul, can't find his donkeys, doesn't know who Samuel is, hides in the baggage, doesn't tell his uncle, right? And all of these things. And yet here we are in verse 22 going, or 24, long live the king. Long live the king. How do we get there? Well, there's three things I can think of out of this text just to maybe wrap our heads around, that there's an extreme fear in Israel. Maybe there's envy and maybe there's pride. Fear is they're afraid without a physical king that all the nations are going to come take advantage of them. And I think that's similar to us. We have this fear. You're like, you know what, God, I, I know you're sovereign and like I know you say to trust you and love you, but I am so afraid. I am so scared. I just got to handle this myself. When we walk outside the word of God, we reject him. Because the emotion is so strong and it is so powerful. It blinds us to what I'm going to call the plain reading of the text. God very plainly says, you've rejected me. It's very plain that Saul's hiding. It's very plain that Saul's talked about tall, dark, and handsome, not spiritual, not character, none of these things. The plain reading of the text. There's envy. They go and they meet people they see other nations surround them. They, they see a Goliath and they're like, wow, we don't have a warrior. I want to have a warrior. I want to sit by a campfire and tell stories about one of us slaughtering the people, ruling the lands. And even though it's God saying, you don't need that. You have me. No, no, no. I have to have it. I have to have it because I want to be like them. They look so happy. God's like, well, remember what I've done. I don't care what you've done. Right now, they have a big guy and we don't. I want a big guy. There's times when we have envy and it blinds us. See, and I know God, you'll provide. I know you love me. I know you say this. I know you say, but I just, if I could just have that, if I could just have that affair, if I could just have that addiction, if I could just keep this secret, it would be so much better. We reject the plain reading of Scripture. Because there's an intensity that we have of, of emotion and desire. And there's a pride. There's a pride that says, we don't need you. We can do it ourselves. We don't need to go to the Bible. We don't need to go to the old man. We need to go to the warrior. There's a pride in that. And when we do that and ignore the plain reading of Scripture, that's a, that's a problem. It creates problems. And so if we were to unwrap this today, is, is there anything in the Bible that no matter how many times someone reads it to you, you just reject it? 
You just reject it. Like, oh, no, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't believe that. Because this is the problem of Israel right here. They're rejecting the plain words. God has spoken. He has told them. I am your king. I am your king. I will provide. And then finally he says, fine, take it. Take it. So here's, here's my question. If we're going to reject the plain reading of Scripture, what he says about marriage, what he says about gender, what he says about divorce, what he says about lust, gossip, what he says about using unwholesome language, what he says about being faithful in your marriage, what he says about all things, we shouldn't reject it. On what basis do we reject it? What's our reasoning for rejecting it? I've posed that question before, and I think somehow it gets lost. So I'm going to rephrase it in a different way and see if it lands better. I'm going to tell you the Lakers are the greatest basketball team to ever play, right? Some of you laughed. I got an amen earlier, so that's a statement. You would ask me back, on what basis would you make that claim? And what if I told you, I just really love purple and gold. I just love those colors. Would you be like, that's a good argument on why they're the greatest team ever? Would you be like, no. Well, what if I told you, but... Man, a Laker, that just sounds so cool. I don't even know what it is, but isn't it cool? It's a cool name. It's a cool concept. No one else has that name. It's a Laker. And that's why they're the greatest. Would you, that's a weak argument, isn't it? Absolutely. But what if I told you, you know, oh, why am I saying that? They have 16 championships. That's tied for the most in all the NBA with the other team who will not be named, right? That's the most, right? They have three of the top five leading scorers in NBA history. That's a basis. You don't have to agree with it, but that's a basis. Fair? On what basis do you reject the plain reading of Scripture? That God is king. God has provided. God has a standard. God has worked. God's word is enough. Those are the questions we have to ask. And and, and that's what I mean by within this narrative, there's so many things to draw out. That's one of the things to draw out is, on what basis do we, do we say long live the king and not God? Now, here's the beautiful thing is that God is being so merciful to them. So merciful to them. They should all be struck dead in this passage, don't you think? Especially after wandering through Saul bumbling into his kingship. It's like, this is just a mess. Start over. And God, yet he graciously says, okay, okay, you don't want me, you want, oh, you're going to cry out to me one day. You're going to cry out to me. Here's a, a quote I came across that I really like that summarizes this. It says, what right have we to think we can enjoy the Lord's power and presence when we deny his lordship by trampling on his word? That's essentially what the essence of what's going on. We trample on his word, but we want that nearness, that security. We want God of heaven. We want God of love. We want uh, God of peace, but we don't want king. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to do it. Tell me when to do it. And that was the problem. And so for us, it's a matter of asking, what will it take for me to trust his word? What will it take for me to trust he's a good king? that he does love me. He does provide for me. I can trust him 
I can do what he asks. That's what we draw from this text. Okay, some questions for us to think through. Have there been times in your own life when you've seen God's providence and the quite ordinary things have come together into a wonderful providential pattern? Meaning, have you, have you, do you pay attention to the small things and notice, you know, I don't share Christ with that person without this happening. I don't have that prayer answered without this happening. Meaning, are, are you tracking the ways that God is teaching you and providing for you? Because if you're Saul, it's very simple. Look, you meet this group, you meet this group, you meet this group. He anoints you. These little things, God drops in front of you and says, you can trust me, you can trust me, I love you, you can trust me, you can trust me, I love you. Because God's always at work. We just don't always see it, we don't always acknowledge it. It's remembering those things, those little things, the faithfulness that God has, the way he knows you, the way he answers your prayers, the way he provides for you in all these ways. Okay? It's, it's making a list of that. Two, why is it irreverent to expect God always to explain his ways to us when we do not understand them? Okay? Does, does God owe us an explanation? Absolutely not. And, and what irreverent is there to say, and God's like, I will be your king. They're like, no, we don't want that. We want a king like all the other nations. How irreverent is that? And, and we do that though. God, I don't want that. God, explain it to me. Why is it this way? Why does it have to be that way? At some point, there's, he's the king and we're not. He's the potter, we're the clay. And so what should we be doing? Meaning, maybe, God, help me trust your kingship. Help me trust everything you have for me. Help me trust your word. I don't want to be irreverent to the king. Verse or three, how can this passage help you not doubt God in hard times? Okay, this, isn't, this is an encouraging text because God's still walking with his people, even though they're not walking with, them, with him. You see that? He's still, he's still right there. And he's even telling him, hey, you're going to come back. This isn't going to go good. So how can this encourage us? Maybe I, can, I, can I trust God now instead of having to learn the hard way? See, because what they really wanted was Jesus. Think of this. They wanted a king, but God in flesh. That's what they wanted. And then they get him riding in on the donkey. What do they do? They crucify him. Why? Because he didn't sit in the throne and overtake the nations. He came to forgive their sins. He, what they really wanted was Jesus. And then when they got Jesus, they're like, oh, but not that Jesus. And when we read earlier, John read in Revelation, the Jesus that you really want, you don't really want. Because when he comes as that king, he comes with a sword, and he comes with fire in his eyes, and he comes to judge. And that's scary, isn't it? It's like, yeah, well, that king's coming, but I'm good, right? I'm good. I trust the other part of the king that loved me, died for me, provided for me. Judgment will come. And how can you trust him until he comes? Five, have you ignored warning signs in the past? And how can you use your Bible to help you not miss them in the future? So many warning signs in this text, isn't there? Where you're just like, wow, Saul, really? Tall, dark, and handsome. That's, that's our, you know? Doesn't know Samuel hiding in the luggage, all of these things. 
God warns us, doesn't he? Yeah. And he says, my word is your warning. It's your warning. And the king's saying, I love you. Take the warning. Trust me. We want to be a church that trusts him. Amen. We'll close with this verse. 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That's the Israel too, isn't it? The other nations don't know God. That's why they don't fear him. Right? Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Saying he will come in his kingdom. He will come and we will know and we will see. Verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the goal of this is that we would hope in him. He is coming. He will make all things right. You have every reason to trust him because of his work that he's done in the past, the work he will do in the future. We have great reason to have hope and trust the King. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he, he came and died and bled in our place, that he bore your wrath that we could not. And it's our deep prayer that, that we would trust you, that we would love you, that we would seek no other king. We would seek no other person that we would seek you in all things and be grateful for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we uh, transfer into a time of communion, uh, one of the great things we can do with this passage is just focus on the absolute mercy we see from God in this. That even though his people are sinful and they reject him, he is merciful and he is patient with them and he deals with them. And he draws them back to himself over and over again in his mercy. And so for us in thinking of communion is to think, man, God has been merciful to me and that I have rejected him over and over and over again. The ways we reject him, not trusting him, loving others more than him, defying him, not praying to him, not coming to him in his word. And the ways we reject him, he still loves us. Christ died and paid for those sins on our behalf. That is a great work of mercy that by his work, we're saved from hell. Isn't that a great work of mercy? That's what we do in communion is we remember that great work and say, God, thank you for being merciful. I've rejected you and you love me and you saved me. And then we take that kind of that morning of rejection and we celebrate that he's loved us. He's forgiven us. He's paid for us. His son bore the wrath of God for us. We get, to, we get to celebrate that fact. And communion has both pieces. We mourn sin. We thank him for mercy. And we celebrate his forgiveness. And so after I pray, you're going to have an opportunity to take communion in your own timing. Um, quick tip, get the bread first. Um, if you go for the juice and then the bread, what typically happens is the juice goes this way and then your Father's Day outfit is ruined. So we do not want that. Bread first, then the juice. Take it in your own time. Remember as you walk through, you know, 
Matthew, that his body's broken, his blood poured out. The wrath of God comes down. He bears all of that for us. That is God's mercy to us, is Jesus taking what we deserve, rightfully so, in our sin, and we are forgiven. And then at the end, John will lead us in a time of celebrating. We're forgiven. We have victory over sin, victory over death. We do have a king that loves us and will bring all things to an end in his name. We have great reason to be excited. And that's how we'll end communion. I'm gonna pray and then we can go. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins. We're thankful that you love us even though we reject you. That we reject the plain words of scripture over and over again and yet you still love us. You still died for us. You still take our place on the cross. It's our prayer in a time of remembrance we would just love you and be thankful to the mercy you've shown, to the grace you've displayed, that we would have grateful hearts that say we want no other king. We want the king who died for us. We want the king who lived for us. We want the king who's coming back for us. And we would celebrate that King as we remember Him in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.